Well, we have one verse to consider today, but the things that are declared by this one verse have tremendous importance to those who want to understand the relationship between God and man. If we fail to grasp what is said in this one verse, then we're going to find it impossible to make sense of the craziness of this world that we live in. And so this one verse is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. These are the words of Solomon the preacher. And he says to us today, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Please join me as we take a moment to bow our heads in humility and prayer. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes to the things that He has in store for us this morning and to shape us into the image of His Son. Almighty God, we we praise You for the Word. We would be lost without this book, which is like a lighthouse to us that keeps us from the treacherous dangers upon the shore. I thank You, God, that through this Word You have kept us from much hurt and harm. Through this Word You have clarified what You have revealed to us through Your Son, By this word, God, we can see what you desire. We can see who you are and what you are like. So continue, God, regularly, every day, to lead us by the power of this word. Father, we come to a difficult scripture this morning. Not one of us wants to be called ugly. Not one of us wants to be called wrong. The human heart longs to be affirmed and appreciated. But there are some things in us that are broken, Lord God. There are problems with the way that we think. There are problems with what we love, with what we desire. And so it is only right, God, that you, as our protector and provider, would be clear with us today, that you would help us to see our flaws, that we would see the one path to redemption from these problems, and that path is your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the healthy do not need a physician. And the sad tragedy of the world is that This world is full of people who are sick but will not admit it, who are in in grave danger yet will not seek the help of the great physician. And so I pray, God, that you would give us a great sense of humility today. Prevent us from stopping short of seeing what we must see and, and help us, Lord God, to exalt the great work that Christ did to overcome this burden. We love you, Lord God, and we thank you for all that we will take home from this passage Help us to apply it to your glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. How did we get to such a harsh and heavy statement here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20? In this chapter, Solomon is making sense of a world that is plagued by vanity. He has come to understand that wisdom is not the key to unlocking the meaning of life, but it can be helpful to living through this craziness of life. And so he is giving us wisdom. The preacher has blessed us with a series of wisdom proverbs, and his instructions are here to help us understand the difference between wisdom and folly. So far in chapter 7, we've learned that the wise man is not concerned only with the day-to-day events of life, but he is also to keep in mind, careful, the end of life. He wants to know what life is about, but he also wants to remember that life doesn't last forever here on earth. We all die, and the brevity of life here should impact the way that we live in the day by day. We've also learned that the difficult seasons that we have to endure along this journey are part of God's sovereign plan. 
they shouldn't be avoided at all costs. They are not necessarily evidence that God isn't pleased with us. God uses seasons of struggle and affliction to bring us greater understanding and maturity. Solomon has also taught us that there is no secret recipe for wise behavior that's going to enable us to avoid all of life's hardships. There are times when those who seek the Lord sincerely, who do everything they can to walk rightly, will nevertheless have to endure hardship and struggle. So wisdom doesn't make us immune to hurt. But all of this deduction has brought the preacher to an unavoidable reality, and that is where we stand today. All of the frustrating vanity that Solomon encounters, all of the discontent and longing, all of the misplaced hopes and the haunting lack of joy and fulfillment that he has had to endure are undeniably linked to the problem that has plagued mankind since his very first days in the Garden of Eden. Vanity is part of life because man has sinned against God. Verse 20 begins with an important Hebrew word. In the Hebrew, the original language, the word is pronounced key. And this conjunction, this connecting word, can mean many, very, very many different things in the Hebrew language. It's often translated as because, or if, or since. But it carries an emphatic sense in this particular text, and so it really should be translated as surely, without a doubt. We have left the world of speculation that Solomon has been walking through, and we've entered into the world of concrete fact. He's no longer conjecturing. He's no longer making hypothesis. Now he is declaring truth. Amidst many observations and many questions lingering in the preacher's mind, this truth proclaimed in verse 20 is by contrast very sure and undisputable. There is no doubt that Solomon sees this sin problem that afflicts every man on earth as a fact we need to wrestle with. And so, again, verse 20 of chapter 7 could be translated, Surely, without a doubt, beyond question, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But the truth is perhaps not so obvious and sure to the world around us. In fact, I would suggest that this biblical declaration is one of the most hotly contested ideas contained in the Christian faith. A huge portion of those in our Western culture hold to a far more charitable view of the heart of man. The more popular mindset, even amongst those who would call themselves Christians, holds to the opinion that man is mostly good, that deep down in our heart of hearts, we all want to do the right thing, that his default is kindness, that given the chance, we will typically do what is holy and good. And this is not a new way of thinking necessarily. All the way back in the 5th century, a British monk by the, by the name of Pelagius preached against the orthodox theology of original sin. He challenged what the church believed. He argued that man is not basically evil and prone to wander, but rather that the fact man is made in the image of God means that he is inherently good and can overcome temptation by simply choosing to do the right thing. If Pelagius were to be right, if man is basically good in heart, then it does beg the question, why is the world that we live in in such disarray? 
Why do men lie to one another? Why is murder a challenge for every culture? Why does man take what he wants by violence? Why are the weak oppressed instead of looked after? Why is there laziness and poverty all around us? And the list goes on. Well, Pelagius had an answer for that. Pelagius and other similar thinkers would argue that mankind has been beset by circumstances and traumas that have corrupted or hindered his good nature. Man is not bad, according to Pelagius, but the world around him is bad. The key, therefore, to overcoming sin, from Pelagius' point of view, was to remove the hindrances that corrupt man and cause him to go against his inherently good nature. In order to fix the sinful behavior of man, we must focus on fixing the sinful circumstances that corrupt man's heart and make him behave like a sinner. Get rid of poverty. Get rid of oppression. Get rid of justice. Solve addiction. And man will respond by allowing the light of his kindness and nobility to shine through in his actions. This is, coincidentally, the basic plot of almost every Disney film ever made. And most of the Marvel movies, not the ones about uh, Logan. Every episode of Friends is basically this storyline, that these are just some great people that are just trying to make it through, and as long as we can get rid of the problems that they encounter day by day, then they will live in harmony with one another. You get the idea. Apparently, the question of man's inherent nature is not only a concern for those in theological circles. Rather, it has a dominant theme in pop culture today. The culture that we live in wants to profess Pelagius' point of view, that man is good, but there are difficulties that man must, and invariably will, according to Hollywood, overcome. Is this mindset still influencing the church today? Eric Johnson, who is the son of Bill Johnson, who is one of the preaching pastors on staff at a church called Bethel in Reading, and I hesitate to even call these men pastors because of the heresies that they so often preach from their pulpits. Eric Johnson is one of the preaching pastors in one of the most influential charismatic churches in America. And in his sermon that's titled The Joy of Consecration, this is what Eric preaches in regards to the sinful nature of man. He declares, you're not born evil. It's amazing how many teachings and theologies start with that thought. Anytime you start with that, you will create a controlling, manipulative environment. Every government, every structure, every system fundamentally and theologically must start with the concept and the idea that people are good and they mean to do good. Even if they are not saved, we have to start from that premise, end quote. Now that sounds like a very optimistic, positive view of humanity. But there's a big problem with what I just quoted to you from that sermon. It is categorically the opposite of what we read in God's Word. It is false teaching. Ecclesiastes 7.20 is not the only passage in the Bible that clearly uncovers this important fallen nature of man. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3 in the New Testament. Romans is such a critical book to our understanding of who we are as people, of our own sinful nature, of who God is as a perfect and holy being, 
and of salvation. The only way that an unholy man can be reconnected to a holy God. And so in Romans chapter 3, Paul is addressing the nature of man directly. And he says this starting in verse 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here the Apostle Paul isn't saying anything particularly new as far as Scripture is concerned. He is actually quoting Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 13. Notice the length that David and Paul have gone to in order to make sure that they are not misunderstood by those who read what they have to write. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. Could the language be less open to interpretation? He goes on to say, no one understands. No one seeks for God. So not only are we all under this burden and curse of sin, we aren't even looking to change that fact. We're not even striving for a righteousness that is holy like God's. Those Jewish Christians who had been raised in the Old Testament scriptures didn't need much convincing. They grew up with a very clear understanding that man is universally afflicted by the powerful force of sin and has been since the fall of the first man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. You remember the story that God created a man and a woman and when He created them, To Pelagian's credit, he was right about something. He created them very good. God created man and woman to do something that nothing else in creation could do. He created us to bear the image of God. We look around the world and we see the grandeur of mountains and vast oceans that contain so much diversity in life. We see in the cosmos endless numbers of stars and universes that we can't even fathom. And yet of all that God has made by speaking existence into creation, only humankind bears the image of God, nothing else. No other creature, no other animal, nothing else bears the image of God. So when God made man, he made them in his image. And he made us with great freedom. When he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, this idyllic place where he could dwell and walk with God, he did not be set rule upon rule upon rule upon him. And instead he said, look at all that I have made for you. You can enjoy all of this. But I covenant with you over one rule, that you are not to take of the fruits of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours to enjoy. Take good care of it. But man, Eve first and then Adam, Eve being deceived, Adam with a clear mind, took of the fruit anyway. And in doing so, rejected the sovereign rule of God from his life. That fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, essentially by taking that fruit, Adam was saying, I'm not going to trust you, God, to tell me what is good and what is evil. I'm going to decide to do that for myself. Which is a fatal mistake. 
Because man is not like God. God is omniscient and sees all things. There is no mystery to God. He knows exactly what is good and exactly what is evil. But as soon as man began to take that burden upon himself and said, I will decide for myself what is good and what is evil, he began to fail himself. He could not live up to that responsibility. And every human being since Adam has inherited this same rebellious heart that says no to the rule of God and attempts to be God for themselves. Consider the teachings of 1 John 1, 8-10. This is so clear. John the Apostle says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Here the Apostle John makes it so crystal clear that not only is man's state fallen, not only are we under the curse of sin, but it is also important for us to acknowledge it ourselves. There isn't any room to have a different mindset about this. The believer is charged to confess his own depravity. If we think otherwise, we are simply lying to ourselves and we are pretending that God is a liar because God is the one who declares that man is fallen. It's not philosophy. It's not theologians in some faraway academy. It is God himself who declares these things. So you, you might find some that say, well, that's Paul's opinion and that's John's opinion. But couldn't they be wrong about these things? Well, look at Genesis 6.5. Because in Genesis 6-5, the Lord Himself speaks for Himself. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only continually evil. The Lord doesn't get things wrong, does He? If that is the evaluation of God when He looks down on the creation that He has made, then how can we pose his evaluation. Solomon, in reflecting on the foolishness of man's ways and the confusion and the vanity of the world, includes in his wise counsel to the reader a bold and at the same time very plain and simple proclamation that sin is every man's problem and that sin is fundamental to all the other problems of this world. The biblical evidence is overwhelming, but it is also backed up by simple evaluation of the human existence. Every human invariably sins. And even the youngest of humans, before they are wrought by trauma and taught the wrong things, without being taught anything, will operate selfishly and in ways that are sinful and destructive to others. Mother and father, I'm grateful you're here to hear from the word of the Lord. You're going to have to teach your child many things, right? If you have been blessed with children, that it is your responsibility to teach your children how to share, to teach them how to control their emotions and their anger, to act respectfully towards others, and to treat people the way that they want to themselves be treated. But mom and dad, you do not have to teach your kids how to steal. When a child wants something, they just take it. They don't care who it belongs to. You don't have to teach your little tiny child how to lie. They're going to figure that out on their own, aren't they? They need no instructions on how to throw a fit when the world doesn't revolve around them. They are naturally prone to sin. 
from the earliest age that we begin to see their little personalities come out and shine through, we begin to see the evidence of Adam and his fall in each of them. My little girl, since she was a few months old, when I'm holding my daughter and I have her in my arms, if I draw near to mama, suddenly little Rosie becomes a running back and she throws the straight arm and she denies mom. She puts her hand right in mom's face because she wants daddy to herself. She doesn't want to share that love. She knows she wants to be with daddy and she doesn't want to share him with anybody. And I'm a sinner too because I love that. (laughs) I love that she loves me, right? But nobody taught her to do that. She's got nothing but love from my wife. But she wants what she wants on her own terms. And she's just a tiny little child. We don't have to teach kids to do what is wrong because it is welling up inside every one of us. Though the proof is prolific, what that proof implies is too much for man to accept. When we hear those words that we are sinful, that we are wicked, we want to do anything we can to not have to accept that fact. Just as Adam and Eve cannot help but try to cover up their sin when they have been discovered as sinners in the garden. When God calls them out and accountability comes back and they have to stand for what they have done, their first reaction is to make clothing for themselves. They see that they are naked and they are instantly ashamed and they try to hide that shame. And so rather than face the reality of our sin, man has chosen instead to believe what would make his heart warm rather than what would help him see the world in truth. Many of you are aware of Anne Frank's story. She was a young Jewish girl who spent two years hiding from the Nazi forces in Holland. From 1942 to 1944, she and her family lived in a small hidden room inside of a larger home. This room was constructed to try to keep them from the eyes of the Secret Service, the German forces that were trying to throw all the Jewish people in Holland into internment camps. So for two years, that's where they lived. And before she went into this room, someone had given her a journal for her birthday. And so her memories, her memoirs of living in that room have been published um, after her death. So you can read about her experiences there, and they're very moving. And in spite of the fact that Anne Frank has seen some of the ugliest examples of human behavior. Though she has seen what springs out of the heart of sinful man, as she has watched in those internment camps that she would eventually die in, she watched people treating other human beings like themselves as if they were animals, starving them, allowing them to suffer in their sickness rather than healing them, subjecting them to slave labor. Though she saw this with her own eyes, Anne Frank could not accept the truth that Ecclesiastes is declaring for us today. In her diary, she writes, In spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply can't build my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, and death. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, Anne could not accept the fact that man is inherently wicked. Why? because her hopes were founded on the idealistic belief that man is really not in need of saving. She preferred to believe that despite his faults, man could rise above, man could be better, man was basically good. But the fact that this confusion and misery and death exists 
should help us to understand that the solution cannot be found within man. There must be an intervention. Someone who is good and holy and true has got to step in to save us. I will go so far as to say this. You cannot hold the Bible to be trustworthy and true and at the same time cling to the belief that man is basically good in his heart. These two views are just incompatible. If man is basically good, you must abandon this book, for it will at every turn prove to us the darkness of man's heart and his desperate need for a Savior. It's what the whole story is about. The main purpose is not our sin, but the main purpose is the redemption of God, the redemption of sinners like you and I. And so here we are. We dare not ignore what the book has shown us. We have come to let God reveal the truth to us today. And though that truth is indicting, though it leaves us ashamed and guilty, it doesn't lie to us. So what does it mean that there is not a righteous man who does good and never sins? It means a couple of very important things. First of all, it means that the problem of sin is a universal problem. It's universal. There is no man or woman alive today that is exempt from the stain of sin. The Apostle Paul declares this again in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So by nature, we are described here by Paul as children of wrath. That means people who have committed sin against the keeper of all that is good, and by breaking the laws of God, we have earned for ourselves the wages of sin, which is death. God, being good and true, has every right to condemn us, to let His wrath come upon us, because He is the defender of what is good. And we have each broken the good law He has given to us. Adam, the first man, represented the whole of humanity. There is a theological term for that. And this might be a new term for you, but it's useful. We call Adam sometimes the federal head. The federal head. What that means is that Adam had a special place in all of humanity. As the first man, he played a representative role for us when we entered into that first covenant in the garden. When God said to him, you have all of this, you have fellowship with me, simply follow this one command, do not eat of the tree, and you will maintain this blessing. But if you break this one law, the covenant says, you will have to die. Adam represented every one of us in that covenant. So his success would have been our success, and sadly his failure now becomes our failure. As our federal head, his failure means that every one of us is born into sin. You are not just a sinner because you've broken rules. You are a sinner because you descend from a breaker of rules. And that is why Psalm 51, verse 5, David, when he's lamenting his sin before the Lord God and confessing it, 
he declares, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is not an indictment on his mom. This is not anything to do with his mom and dad. This means that by being a human, he came into this world with the default heart of sin. When Adam sinned, we became condemned as his offspring. And this is extremely difficult for Western thinkers to, to fathom. We can't barely embrace this idea because we are born and reared on the idea of individualism. That each man rises or falls on his own merit. That each woman can become whatever she puts her mind to. That's how we are taught as we grow up in this American society. But God has shown us that while justice does function on an individual level, there are also very real senses in which we are all in this together. That mankind is unified in its rebellion against God's law. And so Adam's failure is our failure too. Thinking strictly of the works and behaviors of man, there is no two-class economy. We often look at the world and think, well, there's good people and there's bad people. I remember one of the greatest compliments my grandma could give to me of somebody I met for the first time. She'd say, this one's good people. There's somebody you can trust, right? But in reality, there are none of those. That we are all a people of sin, a people who need redemption. We can't think of the good people and the bad people. All there are are sinners and then redeemed sinners. James 2.10 even tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Did you know that? So if you've ever told a white lie, you're also guilty of murder. If you have ever cheated in even just a little bit of a way, then you are guilty of slander. We are all adulterers in a sense because the law is not part and parcel. You don't take the bits that you like and leave what you don't like. God is a sovereign God, and when you break one of his laws, you become a, re a rebel to his kingdom. To sin is to break God's command and to come under his wrath. And so this universal nature of sin carries sim uh, very serious implications. Think with me about this. If the presence of sin is a universal problem for mankind, then it follows that mankind cannot be our own answer to this sin problem. We would need something outside of ourselves to bring redemption and solution because every one of us is affected by it. This, this dovetails perfectly with the, the, the concept we've been learning in Ecclesiastes about life under the sun. Do you remember that concept we've been talking about? When the preacher of Ecclesiastes speaks about what he sees in the world around, he speaks in terms of life under the sun, which means life being lived as if God isn't there. Man's desire to fill his own needs and his own dreams and to, to accomplish his own goals, that's all life under the sun. But Ecclesiastes is helping us to become frustrated with this life under the sun because if we try to solve it for ourselves, we try to find happiness apart from God, we're only going to become frustrated again and again and again. The solution isn't here. It's not in us. It doesn't need to be unlocked from our hearts. The solution is above. The solution is beyond the sun. And thankfully, this God that we have come to worship today doesn't keep it up there beyond the sun, but he brings it down to us. So there is not one human being alive today who is exempted from this charge. 
the years that Jesus walked on this earth, roughly 32 or 33 years that he walked in this world, were the only times that this verse in Ecclesiastes 7.20 was not 100% accurate. And then again, Christ is clearly something more than a man, isn't he? We're going to celebrate the Lord's table in just a few moments. And when we partake of the element of the bread, we are acknowledging that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who himself is God, who came and humbled himself and took on flesh to live like a human being. He joined to his divine nature a human nature. And he walked in the same patterns that we walk in. He was, he was subjected to the temptations of life. But unlike us, Jesus lived absolutely free from sin. He walked perfectly in absolute concord with God's law in absolute harmony with his will. If we had time, we could read through Romans 5 and be reminded that Jesus was not born of Adam. That when we celebrate Christmas in a couple of months, we're going to rejoice the fact that the Virgin Mary was able to bear this young child. But we will also acknowledge that Joseph was not that child's father. That Mary came to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because it represents a separation from the bloodline that all of us are a part of. The sin that Adam committed is transferred to us by our fathers. And yet Jesus, having no earthly father, was born in the state that Adam was born in, without sin. So in a sense, he had a chance to be the new and better Adam, the Adam who didn't fall to temptation, the Adam who stayed in the covenant the way he should and trusted in God. And now those who are in Christ can be a part of a new lineage. We can be adopted into a new family and brought into a state of forgiveness and righteousness that only Christ can offer to us. So if you have time this week in your devotions, read Romans 5 and think more on these things that we've been speaking of today. There's a second thing that we learn from Ecclesiastes 7.20. And this is not absolutely on the surface. This is a logical deduction from the verse. It's not implicit in the words. Sinfulness is an inherent corruption in man. Not only is it a universal problem, but it is an inherent corruption inside of man. It is more than just actions that we do wrongly. It is a defining quality. And it is this righteousness that is lacking in man. Sin is not a problem that we stumble into, my friends. It is a problem that stumbles out of us. And Jesus describes this so masterfully in Matthew chapter 15. He's speaking with uh, his disciples and then some Pharisees come and they challenge him. They're upset at the way that his disciples eat without washing their hands first, the way that the Pharisees do. And so they're complaining and criticizing him. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 15. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, says Jesus, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Of course they were offended. The Pharisees were Pelagians. They believed that if they just worked harder than everyone else, then they would earn good standing with the Lord God. So they were offended by this idea that somehow wickedness was in them and was flowing out of them. Jesus goes on to clarify in verse 17. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach as an expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. See, sin is not just a disease that we catch like a sickness. It is an inherent condition of the heart. And this inherent evil within man invariably results in every human being committing sins of two major kinds. Because of this heart that is corrupt, we will commit sins of commission. Sins of commission. That, that means that when, when, when we're told to sit still by God, we move and do what we're not supposed to do. We exercise freedom that God has not given to us. When He has expressly told us, this will hurt you, we decide that it won't, and we do it anyway. That is a sin of commission. Though your sins may look different than others, they are just as serious. They are just as defiling to the image of God that is within you. Because every time you break God's command and do what you should not do, you are insulting the Creator that gives you the very breath in your lungs. You are defiling the one who allows you to even exist. So there are sins of commission, but there are also more subtle sins, sins of omission. That's when we sit still, even though God has told us to move. We don't love the way that we should love. We let people go to destruction when we should step up for them. We let people go off to hell without telling them about the gospel. We're so selfish that we just keep it to ourselves. We, we don't forgive the way that God has called us to forgive. We don't give to, to needs that would, that would hurt, help people who are hurting. We fail to defend what is good and noble and true. These are all sins of omission. There is so much that we've been created for, friends. God did not just spare you so that you wouldn't have to deal with the inconveniences of hell. He has saved you into a kingdom whereby you are now His and He can use you for eternal things. He can make your life so much greater than just 80 years walking around on a rock floating through space. He wants to use you in such a way that the love of Christ in you will impact other people. Is it a wonder that a desire for true fulfillment is the main dilemma of Ecclesiastes? That's what the preacher began this book talking about. How can man be fulfilled apart from God? He cannot, because we were made to be fulfilled and happy in Him. And so every day that we walk apart from Him, every day that we ignore His calling, every day that we omit to give Him honor and glory is a day when we are turning our back on true contentment and happiness. We often talk about evil as something that is around us, but we refuse to talk about it as something within ourselves. So God has done us a huge favor this morning by making us look it in the face. Think about what this means to us. If our sinful state is about the heart that is within us, not just the actions that happen out of us, then it suddenly makes sense that we cannot be saved by our works. The solution is not behavior. It is not better laws. The solution is a new heart, a new person, a new life that God must give to us. The reality of our offenses are offensive to us. And though it is a heavy burden to have the Word of God hold up this pure mirror to us, that we might see the ugliness of our hearts, there is still hope. There is still reason to trust that God can overcome this. 
I want to give you a minor consolation as we begin to close and then a major consolation. The minor consolation is this. Friends, we can rejoice today because though we have a wicked heart, we are nowhere near as bad as we could be. God is constantly restraining the potential of our wickedness. Whenever I turn on the news and I hear about one of these school shootings, my first reaction is this. How have we gotten to this point where children are killing other children? How could we get to this point? Where did we go wrong? But then when I think about it a little bit, when I'm actually mulling over the truth of things, my second thought is more clear than the first. My second thought is this. Why isn't this happening all the time? Given the wicked potential of the heart of man, and we've seen that potential leak out from time to time, why can I go to sleep at night without terror that someone's going to break into my house and steal all my stuff and take my kids away? How come we don't see tragedy everywhere? Why is there not constant revolution and unrest and hurt and pain? It's because God in His sovereignty is restraining the evil of men, even of unbelievers. His providential restraint only allows us to be so wicked. The law that He has given to us is not a law that we keep perfectly, but that law at least offers some restraint to man. We know there are consequences for sin. We have a, burden, a burdenful conscience in our heart that when we do what is wrong, we kind of know it, right? Even a non-believer will try to hide what they do wrong because they know that it's offensive to a living God. So God is restraining us. We are not as bad as we could be. There are limitations in our faculties. If we had unlimited resources, if our intelligence was greater, if we had un, un, ungodly amounts of time on our hands, then we could accomplish so much more wickedness. But like God who, who causes the Tower of Babel to not be completed by splitting the language of man so they can't work together, God keeps us from an even greater evil that we would manifest if we were apart from His grace. So this is a minor consolation to us. Perhaps this is why we can still cling to the Pelagian view of man from time to time, erroneously. Because there are examples of good that do shine through us at times. Mankind occasionally does the right things despite his wicked nature. And God in his abundant mercy does not allow us to be as terribly wicked as we could be. So that is some consolation. That there are not constant tornadoes and earthquakes. That we do not have to suffer always. There are seasons of good along with our seasons of strife. But there is an even greater consolation, friends. And I hope that you know where I'm going with this. Though you and I cannot overcome the wickedness that is within ourselves, there is one solution that still stands. God, who is above it and beyond it, can overcome on our behalf. What great comfort we have this morning, knowing that this wickedness that is within us, that we cannot solve ourselves, does not have to define us forever. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So if the solution to sin is to do good, to keep the law, then mankind is without hope and we fall short. But all of this points to a greater good. That there is a God in heaven who looks down upon our broken state. And he does not say, wretched sinner, clean yourself up and I will have something to do with you. But instead, he looks down and says, they cannot help themselves. I must help them. 
And in His love, He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law that we have broken, to complete it perfectly. And then, knowing that we had accrued a debt to our God, in order to make justice right, Jesus went to the cross and suffered like a criminal and was scourged and beaten and mocked. He bled His blood out, which will be represented by the juice that we will partake in the sacrament in just a few moments. The bread is His body, The blood is his juice represented so that we will never forget that God made a way where we could not make a way. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is telling us this in a sense. It is all right underneath chapter 7, verse 20. He is pointing to the desperate need of man and our complete inability to overcome sin on our own. The gospel is looming large here. The man who fears God Though he cannot keep the law, has a great expectation that the dilemma that we cannot solve ourselves will be solved as God's perfect plan unfolds in the world. God's known plan for redemption is made known to us through the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ fulfills it and makes it a reality. Jesus is born into humanity. He keeps the commandments in obedience to God. He owes no debt, yet He pays our debt at great cost to Himself. He dies like a human should have to die on the third day because He is not just man, but is also God, and God cannot be killed. He rises from the grave on the third day in fulfillment of the prophecies that He had made about Himself. And then He assures us that He has won and that we will win if we are in Him. And He goes to be with the Father and promises that one day He will return for His people. And so I'm so happy that on the day that God had me preach Ecclesiastes 7.20, which is a heavy passage, which is a hard passage to swallow, that He has also seen fit to give us a physical, tangible representation of the hope that we can have if we look outside of ourselves for redemption. As we turn our attention to the Lord's table this morning, We remember that the night before that Jesus went to the cross, he instituted a holy practice for his disciples. He gathered them in that upper room and he commanded them that the meal that they were about to eat was something that they should take again and again regularly, that they are to observe this practice until the day that he returns with the fullness of his kingdom. This sacrament is a reminder of the redemption that we have in Christ. And it focuses on three truths. It focuses on the fact that Jesus was willingly humbled, that he came in human form, that he brought himself low before the Father and lived the life that we could not live. That's the first thing. The second thing is that he died on our behalf and rose again triumphant, that the penalty that we should pay for our sins was paid in full by Christ if we place our trust in him. And thirdly, it shows us that Jesus has promised that he will not remain away from us for long but that he will one day soon return for his church. Look how it is recorded in Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus taught them how to view the bread when they practice this sacrament. And we will do the same. When we take of this bread, we think about God's willingness to come and be near to us, his willingness to live the lives that we failed to live ourselves. And so this unleavened bread represents the sinless and perfect body of Christ. And in verse 20 it says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, he blessed, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' body would be broken, but so too would his blood be shed for us. And so as we observe the Lord's Supper, this juice will symbolically represent the means by which Jesus has washed us pure and clean. If you belong in the kingdom of God by faith, if God has graced you with a new life, a new bloodline, a new family to belong to, then the sins that you have committed against Him, even the sins that you have not yet committed, have been taken care of in full by this powerful act of Jesus Christ that we celebrate today. We are blessed by partaking of these elements and remembering that amazing grace that Jesus showed us on the cross. It is only by His atoning work that we can be washed clean and forgiven. I want to remind us as we prepare for this that this is an exercise only really for believers. If you have come here today and you do not yet belong to Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to simply observe what is happening. This is a sacred event. It has happened for 2,000 years, and the church will continue to do this until the return of Jesus. But if, if Jesus is not your Savior, then just watch today. But if you consider yourself a Christian, this is a, a means of grace to you. This is a way for you to be encouraged and strengthened to remember where your power comes from. It doesn't come from your heart. It doesn't come from positivity. It comes from Jesus Christ. This is an exercise to be done reverently. So if you call yourself a Christian, but you refuse to obey Jesus right now in your life, you're living in sin and you don't feel grieved by it, you're not repentant of it, you're not seeking His help to overcome it, then I would, I would encourage you to not take the elements today. Unless you can, in a good heart, Repent of those things and ask again for God to be the strength that you lack. We don't want to take of these elements inappropriately. So if you have an unwillingness to be baptized or if you've got a sin that you've been keeping hidden from people and you have no intention of getting rid of it, then please don't do yourself harm. Just let these elements sit. To the end of that, let us take a moment and pray together. We're going to pray silently. And we're going to use this next 60 seconds or so to just thank the Lord for what He has done for us. Pray individually to your God and ask that He might also reveal in you the things that need to change for His glory. All of us are in a process of being sanctified. Though believers have been justified and made right in Christ's eyes, we still have much to learn and much to grow. And so ask that the Lord would continue to sanctify you. And after about 60 seconds, I'll ask a blessing over the elements and then I'll give you further instructions. Let's bow our heads together as we pray.